Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is episode 24. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. You probably thought I was done, didn't you? No, I've just been dealing with a lot of stuff in real life, and unfortunately, this podcast fell by the wayside. I do apologize for that. To make up for it today, though, I have Chapter 23 of Outcast all set to go. As always, I'll be cross-posting this episode on the original Outcast podcast feed, so if you're listening to this there, I do encourage you to subscribe to the new feed over at kickit.yo5.ca or check it out at podchaser.com. And so, without further ado, let's get into Chapter 23 of Outcast. Outcast, a novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 23 Grandfather once told me a story about the tiger's paw and the midnight fang, one that explained the folly of honor and pride. It also illustrated how hatred knew no reason and even in the face of reality, the eyes of rage could never see things clearly. Before the Ascensions, the Tiger's Paw clan served a moderately gentle warlord known as Oruk. The Midnight Fang served a hot-tempered, ambitious warlord named Azrog the Strong. During a visit to Oruk's domain, Azrog stopped off at a small tavern to partake of its offerings. While there, one of the barmaids accidentally spilled a cup of wine on Azrog's tunic. In his rage, Azrog slew the barmaid on the spot, not knowing that she was one of Oruk's preferred distractions when his mate became too much for him to bear. When news reached the warlord of his mistress's demise, he also flew into a rage, assembling the many clans under his command and ordering them to reduce Azrog's domain to dust. Of course, Azrog retaliated, and for the next twenty years, the two warlords threw everything they had at each other. Thousands died over a spilled cup of cheap wine. Away from the conversation and Tiki's optimism, I thought about the story Grandfather told, and about Lars' personal pride. Anytime I remembered him from a clan function, he was always arrogant, boisterous, and treated any Takari like dirt. It was as if the gods had plucked the Midnight Fang out of time and placed them in this post-warlord world. I remember one ascension gathering when Lars backhanded a servant for serving wine that wasn't cold enough for his liking. Thousands of years ago, such behavior was normal, but these days? Let's just say the only time someone invites the Midnight Fang to any function, it is out of obligation and not friendship. Lars' pride would suffer a wine-spilling blow should my suspicions about the Kalpak be true. If proven, the High Council would have no choice but to exile the entire clan. Every man, woman, and child who bore the name Rondoki or swore their loyalties to the Midnight Fang would share my fate. However, with nothing left to lose, what would keep them from retaliating? No longer bound by the rules of the council or clan dictate in general, 
It would be nothing for the Rondoki to storm my former family's estate and slaughter the lot of them. They were a family now, having cast off their warring ways generations ago. They still trained in their traditional art, but that was for traditional reasons, not preparing for battle. No doubt the Midnight Fang would see them, and me by extension, as the reason for their downfall, and retribution would be swift and bloody. If Grandfather confirmed everything, then even if my appeal were successful, it would mean doom for the lot of us. I wanted to believe that I was overthinking it again, but everything fit into place too perfectly. I would have to wait for Grandfather to confirm some of our suspicions, but until I knew more, this growing feeling of hopelessness began to consume me. I was so close, yet with each passing moment, I felt further and further away. The training session did me a world of good, mostly because it kept my mind off the morning's conversation and the fears that were growing within me. The reality of my situation felt suffocating to me. Lars needed to answer for this crime against me, my clan, and all other clans. I also knew that if exiled, his clan would spell my death and the death of my family. However, in the long run, would that be so bad if it meant justice for all his crimes? I narrowly avoided a punch aimed at my head, which snapped me back to the present. I followed my block of that punch with a hard open hand punch to my opponent's chest. I would learn later that had the opponent been real, I would have cracked two ribs with that one shot. My opponent staggered back, but quickly recovered and went for a high roundhouse kick. I spun in the same direction, dropping down and catching him in a foot sweep. It connected, and the Jaguar hologram fell to the ground. I was on him in a heartbeat later, and delivered a hard punch to his throat. The computer registered that as a proper ending blow, and the prone hologram soon faded from view. Enough, Krasis said as I looked up. I stood and uttered a long, calming breath before kneeling opposite my teacher. My record was improving, though slowly. Out of ten opponents, I'd laid out five while the others got the best of me. Fifty percent wasn't that great, but it was an improvement. Hells, even my five losses weren't that easy. At the very least, I'd gone down fighting. You seem more aggressive today, he remarked. The beast is not straining again, is it? No, I replied. I meant it, too. This morning, I had a discussion with Teki about my exile. I didn't mention my grandfather. At the end, I think I may have reached a conclusion about what happened. Oh? But if I'm right, and I go before the council about this, there would be consequences for my fam- my former family. Fatal consequences. I mentioned no names, but the knowing look from Crossus said everything. He knew exactly to whom I was referring. Have you any real proof? Just speculation and logic, I said. I want to be right, but at the same time, I don't. I see, he said. We rose together and proceeded to put away the training equipment, turning the training hall back into a dance studio. 
We said nothing as we worked, and I was grateful for the silence. Perhaps he was disappointed that I was already prepared to go before the council and appeal my exile. I would have to abandon my training with him if I did, as much as I didn't want to. By the time we finished, I had just enough time before work to grab something to eat. I only hoped that the investigation at the docks was done. Whatever the threat was, it had all of us on edge, and that tension could only go on for so long. One offhand comment, and that tension would snap. I had enough crap going on in my life without work becoming another source of stress. A word of advice, Krasa said as I turned to go. Right now, you see before you two choices. Choices? He nodded. Do you step into the light and risk your family, or do you remain in the shadows, keeping them safe at your expense? One choice is safe. The other is just. Someday you will have to choose, and that choice will steer the course of your life from that day on. I nodded. Neither choice seems all that appealing, I admitted. Stay safe and let the guilty go free, or doom my family in the name of justice. Perhaps, he said, a third choice exists. A third choice? Perhaps. Think about it, Dallin. In time, it will reveal itself to you. When it does, give it as much thought as you will the other two. I didn't really have the time to discuss it further. We bowed to each other, and I quickly headed off to work. I knew what the third choice was. It was obvious now that I had an idea about the Kalpak. The third choice was, instead of going away or around, Go through. Continue my training, achieve mastery of the shift, and take the Kalpak by force. Krasa said I would be the strongest student he'd ever trained, so the choice was logical, wasn't it? Admittedly, at the time, I didn't feel like it was. I was still barely able to score more than 40-50% to 50 in my sparring matches and that was after Krasa assured me that he'd dialed down their level to something more appropriate to my skill level. I wasn't ready to take on an entire clan just to save my honor, so that ominous third choice felt like a pipe dream. No, it was either appeal or stay hidden at this point, depending on what Grandfather found out. Neither choice was good, but they were at least feasible. Beating up thugs in an alley was one thing. Skilled clan fighters, many of them shot Leah, was something else. I wasn't ready to face opponents like that, and I felt that I never would. Hmph. <laughs> oh, how that feeling would change. And what that change would do to me. The day shift found the shipment only a couple hours after I'd left. One of the ships from Lakaya was carrying it, and the crew was now in custody. Thankfully, it wasn't my ship, because the servicing crew for that vessel was also in custody. I hoped none of that service crew were exiles. Discovery would mean rather severe consequences for not just the exile, but the Port Authority as a whole. Rumors circulated that the authorities found a cache of Karanite aboard the ship. Some of the most powerful industrial explosives used Karanite at its core. I learned that in its raw form... It was even more powerful. 
With what that ship had been carrying, the docks and a good part of the city would have been a crater. However, we were all assured that the danger had passed, and once the investigation wrapped up, we could return to full operation. It appeared my good deeds from the night before were not going to go unpunished, though. Many of the reports Alistair received during the night showed some alarming discrepancies in terms of container placement and inventory levels. Alistair pulled me off my normal service crew and asked that I help verify some of the sections about which he had questions. I was a little puzzled by this. Containers were not something one moved around the way one would organize furniture. Container placement involved many hands, so the error, intentional or not, sat with more than one person. Swell. First I had evidence that could destroy a clan, and now I was about to gather evidence that would affect one or more senior staff at the Port Authority. Could my night possibly get any worse? As the evening progressed, I found myself finishing off my sections faster than I expected. Overall, the containers were where they should be, though I did find a few outliers. Those I tagged for a stevedore to examine and relocate later. With any luck, I could finish this little deviation from my normal duties and get back to my crew where I belonged. I was approaching my next section when I heard something. It sounded like a muffled cry followed by something else. Normally, I wouldn't have paid it any mind, but when I heard the same sound again, it piqued my curiosity. I began moving toward the sound, trying to stay as quiet as possible. I didn't know why, but something deep inside told me that whatever I was heading towards, announcing my presence to it would be unwise. I'm not sure which of my senses reacted strongest as I approached. My ears much more clearly heard the muffled cries of someone in pain, as well as several other voices. In the evening air, I could smell traces of some pungent odor, which was similar to what I smelled coming off Daro when I had him at my mercy. That smell I could never forget, and as I inhaled it, I could feel my predatory senses begin to come alive. It was fear. Likely, it was coming from the one making those pained sounds. I stretched my whiskers forward, and a sense of imminent danger ahead made them tingle. I put down my scanning equipment before continuing. I followed the sounds and scent through a small maze of containers and soon found myself nearing a dimly lit clearing of sorts. The arrangement of these containers created a space large enough for a small gathering of people. There was one way in and one way out. The smell of fear was almost overpowering now, and the cries I'd heard earlier rang clear in my head. They were pleas for mercy. I risked a glance around the corner and felt my jaw drop open in horror. Illuminated by a couple of portable lanterns were a group of people surrounding someone. I didn't recognize the snow leopard kneeling there, his hands bound behind his back, but I did recognize the six surrounding him. They were the same ones who constantly made known their disdain for exiles in the break room. A few of them I recognized as having those bloodied knuckles the day the ocelot exile had his accident. A shiver ran up my spine as I realized what I'd stumbled into. I quickly ducked away and pressed my back against the container. Part of me wanted to run for help, 
and another part wanted to stay and find out what would happen. A third part of me wanted to do something about it. You should have just minded your own business and moved on instead of sticking your nose where it didn't belong, I heard a voice say. Now, Shariah's going to have to deal with another exile off in themselves, because they're too ashamed of living. I, I'm not an exile, the snow leopard insisted. I heard a fist smack against the poor guy's muzzle. Not like you'll be able to tell anyone when we're done with you, the voice said. I was beginning to shake, both with indecision and rage. Whatever that poor soul had seen or done, the only way this was going to end was with his murder and another exile suicide for the docks to file. I swear, I didn't see anything, the snow leopard said again. No, please, I... I have a family. Family. I quietly unzipped my coveralls and took them off. I had regular clothes on underneath. I then removed my shirt and fashioned a kind of scarf around my muzzle. It wasn't much of a disguise, but I hoped it would work in the low light. The docks are a dangerous place, the speaker said mockingly. Accidents happen, you know. The others laughed again, and I knew the silence that followed was everyone preparing for the final event. I didn't need my whiskers to feel the building tension, and I could almost see the speaker raising a weapon, preparing to strike this hapless snow leopard down. Flashes of that night in the warehouse wormed their way into my thoughts. Back then, there was nothing I could do to save those kittens. Back then, I was still trying to come to terms with what my life had become. Back then, someone I once considered a friend held me back. But that was then. Hold him, I heard the speaker say. I don't want to be at this all night. His tone was so casual, it made me sick. That tone alone would have driven me over the edge, but the mention of family, yes, that was the key. My quest was for family, wasn't it? Not just my family, but his family, and other families these Pakla's harmed for their sick, twisted reasons. I rounded the corner and set upon them without hesitation. The low light kept my location concealed, allowing me to strike from the shadows, surprising them. The one I assumed to be the leader was indeed holding a weapon over his head. A pipe. He was my first target. How had I moved that fast? I dislocated his shoulder, though I didn't realize it until I heard his scream. I then heard him yell, Get him! to his comrades. There wasn't much time, so I had to act quickly. From the speaker, I moved to the next closest target, a lynx. I punched him hard enough that his impact on the container wall echoed for several seconds. The cougar standing next to him received a punch to the muzzle. I felt something break, and I later realized I'd shattered his jaw. Over there! I heard someone shout. Well, at least I got two of them before they reacted. This time I know I snarled, and based on the remaining three's reactions, my eyes had come alight like they had before. In that moment, the lack of confidence I normally had was fast fading. In its place was the same depraved pleasure I'd felt after the fight in the alley. 
I suppressed the shudder that ran through my body. The latent fierce smell in the air, combined with their reactions, played over my senses like the scent of a female in heat. It was delicious. I charged the remaining three, and the middle one, a lion, reared back to take a swing at me. It felt like the sky was moving in slow motion. I easily dodged his swing, ducking under it and punching hard at his armpit. I mimicked the move I'd used on the leader and heard the pop of his shoulder dislocating, followed by a howl of pain. From a tactical standpoint, dividing the remaining two the way I did hadn't been the best move. The cheetah, punching from the right, reminded me of this. I'd taken more than a few punches in my sparring matches, and I had to admit this was one of the stronger ones I'd felt. It dazed me for only a heartbeat, after which I countered with a gut punch that had him spinning blood. He crumpled to the ground, wheezing roughly. That's when I felt it. The hit had been hard, and my vision grew spotty as the pain rose. I fell to the ground and rolled onto my back to see my last opponent, a black panther, wielding the pipe his leader had been holding earlier. Even in the low light, I could see the triumphant smirk on his muzzle. If he took that one last swing at me, and then dealt with the snow leopard, he'd get in good with the apparent leader of this little band. He raised the pipe over his head. I rolled out of the way at the last minute. I heard the pipe thud on the ground as it impacted. I didn't want to think of what my head would have looked like if it had still been there. I moved again without thinking as the pipe came down again, this time on the other side of me. Whoever this Pakla was, he had some experience dealing with beating people. He'd positioned himself in such a way that I had no leverage to topple him. I also had very little opportunity to try, since he continued to strike at me with the pipe. I moved as fast as I could, but I knew it wouldn't be long before the panther would strike true. I suddenly heard a cry of desperate rage. The panther was just about to raise the pipe once more when the snow leopard crashed into him from the side, knocking them both to the ground. I caught my breath quickly, knowing that my savior wouldn't last long against his opponent. I sprung to my feet and moved to where the panther and snow leopard were grappling. As I feared, the panther was too strong for his weakened opponent and had him pinned. I grabbed him by the shoulder and pulled with everything I had. His surprised scream as he sailed through the air was like music to my ears. The sound of his impact on the far wall of this little enclosure was even more satisfying. I stormed over to my first victim of the evening. He was still lying on the ground, moaning, and clutching at his useless shoulder. With a snarl, I gripped his neck and forced him to look into my eyes, which I noticed were still glowing red thanks to their reflection in his own. Know this, I growled, hoping my voice was articulate enough through my improvised scarf. I know you now. Harm another person in this place, and you die. Say a word about what transpired here tonight, and you die. Do you understand? He nodded, his entire body shaking. Satisfied, I stood up and turned toward the opening, but then stopped. The snow leopard hadn't moved from where he'd fallen. He was still breathing, but the fierce scent coming off him was still overpowering. It made sense. 
Sure, he'd been rescued from his attackers, but the savagery of the rescue probably made him wonder if he was truly safe or if he'd gone from the frying pan into the fire. I approached him slowly, wincing as he shrunk back from me. Do not be afraid, I said, my voice still changed and admittedly hard to project as gentle. I walked behind him and easily tore apart the bindings to his hands. He rubbed at his wrists as I moved in front of him again, extending my hand. Let's get you out of here. Uh, all right, the snow leopard stammered. He clasped my hand and I pulled him up slowly. By the gods, he was light. He wavered slightly as he stood, but he seemed able to move on his own. Th thank you, he said slowly. I said nothing, but directed him towards the way out of the enclosure. I followed, but not before picking up my discarded coveralls and taking a moment to look back on what I had done. Six would-be killers now lay about in various states of injury or unconsciousness, and by my hand. I barely remembered what I'd done, except that it only took a handful of minutes to do so. Was I that good, or they just that bad? It felt almost too easy. The snow leopard was waiting for me outside the enclosure. I made sure to keep my muzzle covered lest he recognize me. I hoped it was dark enough that he wouldn't recognize the bundle I was carrying. The last thing I needed was him, or anyone, realizing who I was. I approached him, and based on his reaction to me, my eyes were still glowing. I would have to work with that glow so I could determine for myself when it was happening. As it was, I felt no real difference in my eyes. Thank you again, he said. You saved my life. What will you do now? My voice made him shudder, but he stood his ground. They'll be down for a while, but soon they'll be back, and I might not be around to help you. I know, he said with a sigh. He knew my threat was more of a heat-of-the-moment thing. I couldn't watch the docks every hour of the day. I'm not in exile, he insisted. I took the job here because the money was good, but now? He looked around as if gathering his thoughts. The money's not worth my life. I'm going to find somewhere else to work, someplace far from here. I nodded at this and turned to go. I had to retrieve my scanner and finish my rounds for the night, or else I'd be looking for work elsewhere, too. I was just about to reach for my mask when I heard him calling for me again. Hey, he said. I turned. Who are you, anyway? I regarded him for a few moments, and then gave him the best answer I could, given the circumstances. Someone you should forget. I spoke with Alistair before returning to my normal work crew. I didn't mention the incident with the snow leopard and excused my wincing as having tripped and fallen. He didn't press the issue, except to make sure that I was all right and didn't require any medical attention. I insisted that I was fine, just clumsy. In any case, I must say, Mr. Kane, he said, your report is top-notch. Although... It doesn't bode well for a few of the stevedores. Oh, I asked before I headed out of his office. Well, he replied, according to your findings, there are no less than a dozen violations of code here, 
encompassing three sections. This kind of negligence often costs someone the job. He smiled. Don't worry, Mr. Kane. They will never know it was you. I thanked him for that and headed out to finish off my shift. The crew was glad to have me back. Being shorthanded was always a pain. There were only a few hours left until shift end, so I made the most of it, doing my best to catch up on my regular duties. I thought I did well under the circumstances. At changeover, my replacement barely flicked an ear when he saw what I couldn't complete. I apologized and he seemed okay with it, but I had a feeling that someday he would return the favor. I thought back to the incident as I made my way to the change house to clean up. Alistair seemed genuinely shocked at what I found. The errors I found were numerous, too widespread for that small group of paklas I'd dealt with. That meant they weren't alone. That enclosure needed at least one crane operator to create, and it was more than just a coincidental gap. Someone created it for them so they could carry out their business away from prying eyes. Perhaps many exiles were dispatched there, and then accidents mocked up to drive the narrative of the filed reports. The moment someone attached the word exile, people like Shariah no doubt gave the report the minimal amount of attention required, and then filed it away. Was Shariah a part of all this? It would make sense to have someone in the primary office on an exile cleaning crew, since it would help with the paperwork. However, what little I knew of her personality suggested that exiles were an annoyance because of the number of them who ended their lives at the docks. If anything, she would be more interested in finding them and getting them fired instead of killed. Moreover, that snow leopard wasn't an exile. He was just a guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. No. Rotten as her attitude was, Shariah wasn't part of what I dealt with. Thoughts of the fight and what I'd learned about my exile stayed with me as I showered and changed into my normal clothing. I felt a sense of indignation as I headed for the security checkpoint to clock out. Who were those paklas to pass judgment on someone? What right did they have to willingly take someone's life like that? Moreover, who were the Rondoki to demand justice the way they did? The council members were the arbiters of clan matters and they did next to nothing to either come to my defense or protest when Lars demanded my head. What did that mean? I knew the Rondoki were influential, but they held no real power in the council, at least not officially. What if they did have some sway? In the face of overwhelming evidence, would the council call for my head regardless? It was a sobering thought, and a depressing one at that. The more I thought about it, the more I was convinced that there really was nothing I could do. If the Council truly was under the Midnight Fang's influence, then there would truly be no justice for me. Any move I made to vindicate myself would end me and, no doubt, end my family. I was again grateful for the silence as I rode home. It helped me work through every scenario I could trying to find a way to regain my honor while being spared the wrath of the Midnight Fang. Alas, every non-violent path I considered all had the same ending. Death for everyone. 
Lars Rondoki's obsession with the Kalpak doomed us all, but to slaughter us all would only prove his unworthiness of possessing it. I wondered if there was an old god of irony. So what now? Tiki asked. When I returned to the dwelling, she immediately knew something was wrong. Despite the time and my exhaustion, I told her about what happened at the docks and what I'd concluded. Before I started investigating all this, I had a shred of hope that this would all end peacefully. I didn't know how or when, but that faint hope kept me going. Now that I better understood my situation, that hope was fast fading. I don't know anymore, I said. She came around to face me and sat on my lap. I mean, there was a chance, but now? I feel like a kitten trying to reach for a string that's just too far away. I almost wish we didn't talk about this before. I mean, now that I know... What if I told you it didn't matter? She interrupted. My eyes must have widened because she nodded slowly. Dallin, I love you no matter what. And who knows? Maybe this is a sign that you're not meant to go back. Maybe you're meant for something different. I chuckled dryly. <laughs> One hell of a sign, I muttered. Can't get much more obvious than knowing a corrupt clan and an equally corrupt council stand between you and the life you once knew. Maybe the gods wanted the message to stick, she said with a smirk. Her face turned serious after that, and in those amber eyes I saw that same look of sincerity she'd given me after our second kiss. I mean it, Dallin she said, all humor in her voice gone. If the gods have put such an obstacle in front of you, it can only mean that they don't want you to become part of that society again. I suppose, I said. Admittedly, it was hard to think of anything but her at that moment. I guess I just never thought about it that much. I mean, I knew someday I'd have to make that decision. I just thought I'd have more time. Taki leaned in and kissed me lightly. When I left the tribe lands, I knew I'd never go back, no matter what. I had to leave behind everything I ever knew just to survive. Now you must do the same thing. But unlike me, you've got someone to stand beside you. I collected her into my arms and held her tightly. With all the letdowns I'd experienced since my exile, Taki had been the one person I could count on. Her embrace was the only constant I had in this ever-growing sea of chaos. Perhaps she was right. It was time for me to accept my fate and abandon the clans entirely. Grandfather would be disappointed, but if he found the answers and they coincided with what I believed, then it would be the only way I'd survive. I would forever be an outcast, but at least I would be alive. I love you so much, I whispered into her neck. I just wish I could give you the life you deserve. We can build that life, she said. We just have to keep being careful, and in time we can make a life for ourselves. Far from the clans, the tribes, and all the politics. It'll just be you, me, and maybe a family in the future. Family? Uh, are you... She laughed. No, not yet. But I'd like to be, someday and I'd love for them to be yours. Her words would have stopped my heart normally. Score one for augments. A family. Something Shiana and I barely talked about, 
Yet here I was, my cougar in my arms, and we were contemplating having children. I kissed her passionately, perhaps feeling a bit eager to get started on said family, but I knew it would be something for the future, when we were both away from this dwelling and all it represented. That didn't stop us from getting in a fair amount of practice that night. We were both panting from exhaustion when we finished, holding each other as sleep overtook us once more. I felt excited and afraid at this new direction in which I was heading. This was the first time I'd even considered a life without the clans. I couldn't go back without risking my life and the lives of my family. The best choice was to turn away and let the clans continue their games of machination and intrigue. I would no longer be their pawn. Something still nagged at me, though, causing a delay in my falling asleep. Lars won. He cheated, and he won. Father's victory against him in the Kumal meant nothing because it changed nothing. Someday, the Kalpak would resurface, and it would do so when it helped the Midnight Fang the most. Despite being unable to fight it, the idea of it still stung. Grandfather said that Father exiled me in hopes that I would live long enough to come back one day. Had that been a gamble or an expectation? Did I really owe the clans anything? Did I owe my father? I grumbled slightly, rolling over and trying to sleep. I wanted to be with Teki, clans be damned. So why was my mind reminding me of some sense of duty or justice? Was it my mind, or was it the beast? Perhaps this want for justice was little more than a desire to even the score with Lars and burn his whole plot to ash. I wanted bloody retribution for everyone who had wronged me since that night. I wanted control back in my life, but it felt like I was fighting a current that was too strong. It would be easy to let go and just tumble with Teki to wherever the fates led us. She wanted a family with me. I could be a father and be a damn sight better one than mine was to me. There was only one thing I had to do to realize this dream. Let go. So why couldn't I? Why did this need for justice or retribution insist on nagging me? When sleep finally came, there was no resolution in my mind. In the morning, the conflict would still be there, and I would have to deal with it. I was torn between my love for Teki and my desire to clear my name with the clans, even though that meant my death. <sighs> why, oh why, was my life so difficult? If I could, I'd like to have met the patron or god I'd ticked off and apologize. This kind of stress was going to make me old before my time. And that's our story. So if you've been listening from the start, you've probably noticed that the audio quality seems to vary from one episode to another. In my defense, I'm still looking for that audio sweet spot, where the quality of the finished product has a professional sound to it. I realized early on that this version of Outcast wasn't going to be the one that I finally submit for publication. I am working towards re-recording each episode using the exact same recording setup for each one, and taking notes as I go so I know what levels to use, what amplification to apply, etc. 
and I think I'm zeroing in on my target. I've asked for some advice from people, but to be honest, getting a right answer for recording a podcast is a lot like getting a right answer for a resume. There really isn't a gold standard, so you have to do the best you can. And speaking of resumes, the job front is starting to look a bit more promising. The COVID numbers are falling substantially in my province, and I've been getting some callbacks on a few applications. I've also started working on my ITIL foundation certificate, which a lot of potential employers are calling for, so we'll see how that goes. In any case, I think I'll leave it here for now. As always, thank you for tuning in, and if you'd like to leave some feedback, please feel free to email me at outcastnovel at gmail.com, or you can leave a voice message via the SpeakPipe app at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.